0: Welcome to HashiCast, the self-proclaimed number one podcast about the world of DevOps practices, tools, and practitioners.
1: You're not eating that as well. I wasn't the one who was, I wasn't the one who threw up this morning, was I? Poor dog. Oh, we, we we can totally edit that. So welcome to to Hashicasts, And today we're going to have a little bit of a difference because unfortunately my dog was sick on my bed this morning. So I'm not going to be able to record the episode, but I can assure you you're in completely safe hands because we have Rosemary, who's our newest DA, and Eric, who's our second newest DA here at hashikoth And do you want to maybe, you know, like, introduce yourselves or something like that. Rosemary, you go first, because...
0: uh... Awesome, thanks, Nick. So I'm Rosemary Wong. I'm the newest developer advocate for HashiCorp. I came from a variety of different roles. I started out as a DevOps engineer to this day. I still have no clue what that means. And I used a lot of the proprietary cloud automation back then. And over time, I joined a consultancy, specifically ThoughtWorks, learned a lot about software development practices, continued to grow, and learn about infrastructure automation and testing. And then I arrived at HashiCorp. What about you, Eric?
2: Well, I joined just before you in March, Um, and before that, I was working as a consultant at Xebia, where I created a product where you can learn infrastructure through hands-on challenges. So that's what I've been doing mostly for the last two years. Um, And it was actually built upon the HashiCorp products. And that's how I got into contact with Nick.
1: And you've never looked back, I'm 100% certain, or maybe you look back every day and think, my God, what have I done? And back onto that anyway. So I'm, uh, I'm literally out of here cause I got to put the washing machine on, but, um, I'll hand it over to you and I will look forward to listening to this episode after you've, uh, processed it. So with that, I'll see you later.
0: Thanks, Nick. Hope your dog feels better. Eric and I are here today to introduce ourselves, talk technical about developer advocacy and reflect on HashiConf EU. Eric, you mentioned that you were at Exebia. What did you do there?
2: Uh, yeah, so at Xebia, I was working for the big companies in the Netherlands, such as banks, et, et Um, And we were helping them do either transformations where they had to move from on-premise to cloud or move them towards an infrastructure as code kind of way of working. Um, and through that, I worked a lot with HashiCorp tools. And then when I was working at one of those companies, we had to actually teach them how to onboard onto a new platform that we created for them. So I created a a program for for that that would spin up infrastructure on demand, and then they could go through exercises basically recreating the environment in small steps. And then the system would actually validate that they did those things correctly
0: and there was a time when I hear arcade games were involved,
2: yeah. So, we, we were gonna try and do something for Hashi days and we wanted to create something funny and cool. So we thought like, okay, what if you could create an arcade game around the HashiCorp tools and maybe you have to perform challenges on an actual arcade with a keyboard and a joystick, and then have to perform tasks in Terraform and get points for doing it or lose lives if you do it wrong and then have a high score. Um, which was really funny to see, for instance, Seth Vargo go crazy on the machine on the vault challenges and yeah.
0: (laughs) Did he get the high score or someone else got the high score?
2: (laughs) Oh no, of course Seth got the high high score. Like he's super competitive, but it was just fun when he got the wrong answer and Mitchell was just laughing at him. There's a great picture on Twitter for it.
0: I think we're going to have to dig that up.
2: (laughs) Oh yeah, I can find it. (laughs)
0: So how did you arrive at HashiCorp? I know you were collaborating a lot with the tools.
2: Well, I've known HashiCorp for like really long time. So I've been at all their conferences except the first one in Portland. So since I was using their tools, I was visiting their conferences and then got in contact with like the developers back then, which back then was a tiny group of people. Um, And over the years, I've just kept in contact with them. And then when the Connect launch actually happened, uh, Nick was looking at a way to like create a, a demo for, for that. And then they actually used Instruct as a platform to launch that demo. So I worked quite closely with Nick on the Connect demo and creating that uh, for that, that launch. And then a year later, when I saw the advertisement for the job, I just thought, well, just have to go and try and get that job.
0: It's awesome. You went from building tools to help people learn tools to now being a developer advocate.
2: Yeah. And how did you like make the switch from going from consultancy to making the switch to DA? When did you decide to do that?
0: I was always doing DA work at Thoughtworks. I think there's a big emphasis in the industry now on being present, uh, being open with the things that you're doing, there's a bit more working out loud than there was before. And I remember something that I told myself when I switched to ThoughtWorks. I said, this is an opportunity for me to be more public with the things that I was doing. I think it was really difficult for me to speak openly about my work when Some of the stuff was just protected by intellectual property. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it makes it really difficult to share and to communicate with people in the industry and people in the community. And so I sort of took on the role of public speaking and blogging and writing for ThoughtWorks. And the more I did it, the more I really enjoyed it. And I decided, you know, I think all of my time is spent either helping a developer or engineer understand what they needed to do and how they needed to get there. Um, And if I was going to do that anyway, as a consultant, I might as well include the public speaking and the blogging as part of my role. And that's how I ended up in developer advocacy. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty funny though, because at one point I was thinking, I'm going to a bunch of conferences and talking about the things I'm learning from my clients. And I thought about it. I was like, you know, wouldn't it be nice if I did this more often (laughs) or I had this as part of my role? But I think everybody now has an opportunity to speak publicly if they want to, or they have an opportunity to write publicly if they want to as well. So I know more companies are giving that opportunity.
2: Yeah, there is more and more companies opening up, like also for a hiring perspective, of course, right? Like showing the kind of things they do and try to attract new, new talent. So Rosemary. If we go all the way back, what was the first interaction that little Rosemary had with computers?
0: So the first time I used a computer was back when Compaq was making those integrated computer desktops. And I used to play Pajama Sam, which is like a kid's game on it. That was the first time I used a computer. It was literally just to play games. And I remember, though, I stumbled upon like a dot matrix printer. Is that what they're called? Yeah, dot matrix printer in, in my parents' house. And we still had the paper with the holes and stuff that I was like, what is this thing? What is that? That's so fascinating. But I never used the printer. So that was probably my illustrious history of the first time I used the computer. I don't know if your history goes back further, Eric.
2: <laughs> wait, Wait, are you saying you've never used... A dot matrix printer.
0: No, never used a dot matrix printer. That's not, I, you know, like I said, it's not that far in my illustrious history <laughs>
2: of computers. Wow. <laughs> like, it's an iconic sound, just hearing the printhead go side to side. I'll, I'll I'll, YouTube it for you.
0: Okay, thank you.
2: It's okay. I'm, I'm sure somebody created like Star Wars songs or whatever on the printer, like they did with the hard disks. I'm sure they've done that with the printer as well. I'll, I'll find it.
0: You can do that? OK. All right, find it and send it to me. Oh, well. I assume you've used a dot matrix printer, yes. When
2: I was in school, I had to do all my my homework, like the assignments on the dot matrix printer. And it took ages to print those. When I was using computers, you didn't put CDs in there. There were just the big 5 and a quarter inch floppies uh, where you had to put one in to first boot the operating system, take out the disk, then put it in your game. Um, yeah, that's when I started with computers because my dad had computers from, from work. So I played games on his work computers. We, we had a lot of old computers. We had one of those very old IBM laptops as well, which I was allowed to use once. And then I was cleaning up Windows and I thought all these separate files in the Windows directory, like who does that? So I moved them into a directory, um, and apparently, if you move command.com, it doesn't work that well. So, yeah, it didn't boot anymore. They had to send it back to work. He had to explain it, and, well, I wasn't allowed to touch that one anymore.
0: I feel like that's, the, that's actually how you learn, though, right, on the computer, is you're just, like, you were fiddling around with something, and then you accidentally locked yourself out or broke it, so...
2: Yeah, oh, that's how I how I learn everything. Break something and then learn from it. Does that mean you you've never had to install SimCity two thousand from like thirty two diskettes, where disk sixteen of thirty two is corrupt?
0: No, it was all CD. I had Sims on CD.
2: You've you've missed all those beautiful moments.
0: Didn't have to do it. Windows was installed from one CD. <laughs> At least I installed Windows from CDs. I did install Linux. I think I must have been 10. Uh, I think my dad was like, oh, yeah, there's this other system called Linux, because I used to put together computers and stuff with him. And he was like, oh, yeah, we can install this. And so then he just gave me this giant desktop. And he was like, install Linux on it. I was like, I don't know what this Linux thing is, but this Penguin's pretty cool. So. I was like, all right, I'll install it. So that was, I, I think I installed that via CD too.
2: Yeah, I've only installed Linux back then via CDs too. And I think back then, mostly I was just installing Windows uh, or Linux over and over again. Just, oh, broke something again. After reinstall it. Oh, something's not working anymore. After reinstall it.
0: So we talked a lot about My first computer and first HashiCorp tools, but what was the first HashiCorp tool you used?
2: So the first HashiCorp tool I used, my most used product back then was actually Packer, creating uh, VM images and using that and then later moving on to console.
0: Nice. And was console being used for service discovery?
2: Uh, Yeah, so Console was used with Console Template on Nginx or HAProxy to do service discovery um, and a little bit for uh, centralized configuration using the key value store, but mostly service discovery.
0: Actually, I did not know Console Template was a thing. (laughs) I learned about that the other day uh, when we were working on our Vault workshop and I was like, oh my goodness, how did I not know this tool? So maybe we should do a, pl- a small plug for Console Template, whose name is a misnomer, uh, but Console Template is available so you can pull keys and values out of Vault and Console and I think many other things, right?
2: So it's mostly out of Console and Vault, yeah. Um, like Vault, you can get secrets, etc., and then Console, you can get the key key values or service catalog. Um, but have you heard of Env console then?
0: No, I have not either.
2: <laughs> OK. So that's another nice tool where you can actually populate environment variables through console.
0: Nice. Yeah. See, there are all these tools about console that I didn't even realize because the last time when I was using console, it was probably not the most ideal configuration. I think it was definitely a poorly configured console at that. Point. <laughs>
2: I actually creating these kind of tools is my favorite part of the DA work where we create like little bridges between our products and like software that companies might already be using and actually get full potential out of our our products, which is really great.
0: Yeah. I think that it's very easy to use what you have out of the box, but it's a lot lot more difficult when you try to position it in multiple components and you have to figure out how do all of these things work together. I think that the the first time I did network automation, I wanted to use something to configure a switch and I wanted to be able to watch changes and then apply it. And that was where console watchers came in. I didn't even know like, oh, watchers could actually be really useful for this, but it was really useful. But then I was struggling to integrate it with Ansible and all sorts of things. So. I think a lot of the developer advocacy work is most exciting because you get to look at all these pieces and figure out how they fit together.
2: Yeah. Are you working on any cool products right right now?
0: So I can't say uh, anything is cool, but it's definitely practical. I uh, usually focus on putting together demos or uh, integrations or examples that I think that people ask for or think about, but they don't necessarily put it all together or they don't necessarily have the knowledge to do and one of the ones that I'm working on now is there's a Spring Boot example called Piggy Metrics and it's a repository that I've used over the years that demonstrates how to use Spring Boot, Spring Cloud uh, as an example for microservices architecture. and what i looked at it i remember looking at it and i was like there's so much java code in this there's a uh, heistrix proxy there's ribbon there's eureka there's uh, and there's zool there's a there's a lot of libraries in there to accomplish a lot of l7 stuff l7 routing l7 Um, control, traffic management, shaping. There's a gateway in there, and I was just like, this is just so much Java code. So what I've been doing is actually taking it all out and replacing it with console connect um, and console mesh gateway as a good example of not necessarily console, but an example of how you might use a service mesh in lieu of all of these libraries. I think um, I'm hoping to get a more thorough example of it and take out more Java code from that particular application but it's been a very interesting process
2: that's actually very cool like i can imagine us actually hooking that demo up to other languages that might have similar setups right where they have a fat client with all the logic in the application and then take that out and connect all those together in one big service mesh yeah very cool
0: What's so really exciting because it's it's because it's a microservices architecture, and not not to demonstrate or say that microservices are better, as much as just uh, if let's say one there are three microservices in PiggyMetrics, and one of them happens to be an accounts API. I can take out the accounts API and swap it with a .NET application, for example. Or if the backend MongoDB you know database, I just take out those MongoDB instances and I swap it in with some SQL instance. The intent is to show, hey, maybe the SQL instance might be a SaaS offering, or it might be somewhere on your data in your data center. And I think it's a pretty fun way to show how a service mesh, the intent of a service mesh, if you do use it is to stretch across all these multiple applications, uh, multiple types of applications, which is pretty common in a data center. What about you? What cool demos? I know that there's a there's a very fun one that we were chatting about.
2: Yeah, so there's a fun one, which I don't know if I can disclose yet. So that, that'll that stay for later this year at HashiConf US. Um, I'm working on a less fancy one, but which is kind of like you you said, more useful. Um, So I'm working on a task driver for Nomad to actually schedule IIS (laughs) applications. (laughs) So on Microsoft IIS, you can schedule a website or a web app um, and do that using Nomad, which makes it easier for people um, using Windows to actually uh, move towards microservices or move towards cloud where they still have their existing infrastructure in their data center, or maybe they're running IS in the cloud, but they want to move to containers, et cetera. This gives them a way to schedule in one clear way and then do that over their entire fleet of applications.
0: Nice. Is it common for someone to ask, Hey, you know, I, I do you have a good example of how to schedule on IIS, or this is just an interesting way to demonstrate how Nomad can be extended.
2: So it actually grew out of a visit that I did, um, at a company that are using our products, so they were using Nomad and console on windows and then when they were describing their entire environment to me, there was like, oh yeah, then there's this corner where we're still running IIS applications. And yeah, we're mainly doing that manually or by executing a PowerShell script. And that just made me think like, okay, there should be a nicer way to do this, to actually just use Nomad as well to schedule those. And the funny thing was that when I actually created a repository on GitHub, the day after, somebody contacted me because they were searching for a way to schedule on IAS using Nomad. And then now they're asking for me to further develop that driver. So that's really interesting.
0: When I was working as an operator or in operations at a bank still, you know, there were so many workloads that were not able to run on cloud. And that was always the discussion point, right? It was like, oh, we're always running this stuff in our data center and it's end of line, end of support. No one <laughs> touches it anymore, but we still have to run it because our critical applications are on it.
2: Often it's also like um, like a block for actually moving forward. Cause it's like, no, we can't move because we still have these things. Whereas if they have like this bridge between uh, those environments, they can actually start moving forward, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, a question you asked me was like, have you run console on COBOL? Written... What was it again?
2: Yeah, have you ever used console with COBOL applications? Because I was trying to get a, an answer with console template from you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, but at the time I was like, what, people actually try to run console with COBOL? There you go.
2: Yeah, because at the time, I was actually creating a demo um, around Nomad and Console Service Mesh. And I had to write a COBOL application. Well, I first had to learn COBOL specifically for, for that and then write an application in COBOL where I thought like, okay, I'll just create an application. I'll listen on a port, send it some data. Then I figured out that COBOL doesn't do networking. So that was the, the first barrier. That was like, okay, I'll just do something with a database. Well, it didn't have that either. So I had to do everything with files. And then I was thinking like, oh, that's actually quite an interesting question. Like, how would you use console with an application like COBOL where you can do things with files, but not with networking, for instance?
0: Yeah, that was an interesting question. People still have COBOL workloads too. So that's pretty cool. I think I need to learn COBOL. What do you think?
2: Um, yeah, totally.
0: Do they have COBOL tutorials out there? I'm just curious.
2: Um, so the documentation around COBOL is pretty horrible. So they they actually made an, I think it's called open COBOL, which is like a little bit modern version, which can actually with libraries connect to a database. Um, but the documentation around the whole language is, is not as what we now expect from documentation.
0: Uh, okay. Well, maybe I'll give it a try anyway. We'll see what happens. It could be successful.
2: You can check out my, my repo on GitHub and be be scared by all the yelling code.
0: <laughs> the yelling code. Well, speaking of demos and just generally doing interesting things, how do we make demos more fun to watch? Or are there demos or examples that you'd like to see that you'd find very useful, whether it be a console with COBOL, which Eric has a repo for, or some more practical examples that you might be seeing every day. Tweet at us with that feedback at hashtag HashiCasts. So H-A-S-H-I-C-A-S-T-S, HashiCasts. All right, so moving on to some pretty cool announcements that came out of HashiConf EU.
2: Yeah, so console now supports all the L7 features, which is great. Uh, So now you can do very complex routing, like using HTTP path routing. Um, You can have custom route definitions where you can say, if it matches a certain meta tag, I want it to go to uh, a different service, for instance. Um, And then of course, traffic splitting, which is very exciting, where you can send a percentage of traffic to, a subset of your services. So we actually created a demo for the keynote or no, it was not the keynote. It was uh, Paul Banks' talk where we had a front end running on AKS. Uh, so on, on Azure, on Kubernetes, and then the backend was actually running on Nomad in Google cloud. And then we had two versions of the backend running in GCP and just by adjusting the weight of those two versions, we could send the traffic to the Canary in this, in this case, and we would send it over the service or the uh, mesh gateway, which is the other big announcement. And it would split that traffic exactly between those two services. And then once the traffic got too high, the service would fail and we could actually roll back to the previous version just by changing that configuration.
0: Actually, I was having a discussion with a few people the other day and someone did bring up a very interesting point, which is Mesh Gateway seems a little similar to a Kubernetes Ingress, which I maybe it's because I haven't dug too far into the Mesh Gateway stuff, but it does sound a little similar to it. What do you see as the differences?
2: So a Kubernetes Ingress, I see more as a load balancer, right? An an entry point into your Kubernetes cluster. Whereas a mesh gateway, you have encrypted data and service discovery over the mesh gateways, like the the connection between those two. So if I have a service in Azure and I have a service in GCP, the service in Azure can just say, okay, I want to talk to API. And if that service is in um, GCP, the mesh gateway will actually route it there for you. So an, an ingress wouldn't do that for you. It would just accept incoming requests and then route them to the service internally, but it doesn't create that connection. I guess if you would want to compare it to um, something else, it's more like a VPN tunnel between two environments, only it also solves the problem where you have two different IP spaces um, that you then have to map to each other, right?
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that's an interesting point. I there's I remember when I was working on microservices and for better or for worse, Spring Boot applications, right? Spring Boot applications to be hosted on uh, hosted on an environment. You know, there's this big talk uh, years ago about API gateway, right? So your single one gateway that directs to all other APIs. Um, and there were a lot of interesting discussions about that. And slowly over time, I see we've sort of moved toward that very distributed mesh model. Um, And in in this particular case, I see gateways as an extension of how far we move toward that evolution, right? And so ingress might be some midway point when at the time we just didn't really have the capability or didn't really have the possibility of doing something where there's end-to-end encryption, this VPN tunnel like experience across multiple networks, multiple workloads. And I see the mesh gateway sort of taking that next step in the evolution.
2: I I think that it can create a sort of flat world view over your entire environment is the, the most powerful element where you don't have to do any route translations, um, between one IP space and the other. So it's just, okay, there's a Kubernetes cluster on one side, there is a data center on the other, and then we have a third one, there's maybe another Kubernetes cluster. So if you would normally want to connect all of those together, you would either have to use a direct connect, which is difficult to set up and expensive, or you'd have to like federate Kubernetes clusters, which is also really, really difficult. And then you still have the IP spaces being different and still have to take care of that. Mesh gateways does all that for you.
0: Yeah, so I think there's um, definitely a lot of the console features that make things easier, right? That's the intent of... It's not necessarily that it's a revolutionary idea or that it is uh, a completely novel idea or some formulation or some solution hasn't tried to do it before as much as it makes it much easier to do. And there's less of operational responsibility or burden to maintain something like it. A lot of networking stuff though. Nomad also announced network namespacing too, which I was very, very, I I know you're very excited about and I was very surprised to hear.
2: Yeah, it's it's one of the features I've been looking forward to in Nomad for for years now, where you have that um, pod experience that you have in Kubernetes. You now have that as well in Nomad for groups where you can have uh, bridge networking so you can have your group get a specific IP, and then you don't have to worry about the the ports anymore on that machine. Um, and then combined with that, there is now the native connect integration, which makes it really, really smooth to like get a sidecar service for your, your application, because Nomad will actually take care of all of that for you.
0: I think the Nomad network namespacing was really interesting to hear about because i worked on sdn before uh before doing a lot of the cloud public cloud provider stuff and there was always this really difficult time trying to integrate the overlay network into docker and and putting that into an orchestrator so whether it be nomad or marathon or mesos or etc um it was interesting because what i was Thinking though is that console pushes for intent or identity-based uh, kind of authentic, not authentication, but um, network policy. So network policy is driven by the identity or the intent. But it seems to me a little bit like network namespacing is a step back a bit, right? Because you're doing logical segmentation. You're moving towards segmentation and not necessarily identity-based. I don't know how you reconcile it, but to me, it was sort of like, huh, why Why do we not just do identity for everything rather than doing the network segmentation, which is kind of what network namespacing does?
2: Well, to do the service mesh um, safely and securely, you, you need network namespacing for that to, to happen. Because otherwise, like before, Nomad would just bind to the host. So if you would configure your intentions in console connect, you could say, oh, only web is allowed to talk to the database or whatever, but it would still be listening on that host. So you could just bypass the proxies and talk to that port immediately. So without the actual network segmentation, there's no real way to limit the communication inside one host. Whereas with the network segmentation, you actually get an IP per group, and then you can limit the access to that IP.
0: Yeah, so even on a host, right, it's still accessible. So network namespacing offers isolation on the host level? Okay.
2: Yes, that, that's correct. Hmm.
0: that's interesting. See, learning all sorts of interesting things today. I've been in Terraform land a lot, and with O12 coming out, it's been mostly focusing on patterns and communicating that information. So a lot of the console and Nomad stuff that's new, I think is a really interesting discussion because there are a lot of of new names, a lot of announcements coming out and a lot of new terms. uh, And it'll be interesting to see how they get used.
2: Speaking of Terraform, there were some new Terraform announcements as well. Could you tell us some more about those?
0: Yeah, so there is Terraform Cloud right now. Remote state is out. And so if you have been using encrypted S3 buckets and GCP storage buckets for all of your state file management, uh, that sort of goes away with the remote state management in Terraform Cloud. There are additional features coming soon and they'll be in the pipeline. These features like remote plan and apply, and they're all on the Terraform Cloud landing page. Uh, You'll see some of them available. They're actually not all GA, uh, not all generally uh, accessible right now, but they will be soon. And Terraform O twelve 12 has been going through a couple of fixes lately. As people have been reporting bugs, we've been working through them. And the Terraform providers are also getting a little bit of love, too.
2: So with the remote state... Does that mean I don't have to go through the uh, the bucket limbo anymore, where I have to create a bucket and I want to use Terraform to do that, but then I need to store the state for that bucket somewhere? So that'll probably be on my disk and I'll forget that it was there and then I can never like do anything to the bucket again. Is Does that mean that is gone?
0: That is gone, thank goodness. Because the number of buckets that I've orphaned because I've accidentally just not deleted them because my state was local is amazing. I think I went through um, one of my biggest uh, repositories that creates a GKE cluster and I took out the GCP storage bucket, so it was encrypted, so I had the KMS keys, it had the KMS keyring, it had the bucket, it had a lot of interesting things in there. Uh, And I took it all out and I think it went from like 200 lines of code for bootstrapping that bucket Uh, And that just went away and I don't have to worry about creating the bucket and managing it later because those buckets can become very expensive if you keep writing state to them, right? And then I remember in AWS, when we did S3 bucket um, storage for state, you would turn on versioning just to be safe. And if let's say one day you were just testing, it didn't, it wasn't like a production state, right? But it was was just dev state that you're using for testing and you no longer needed that bucket because you decommissioned the environment, I think I waited four days for the bucket to be deleted because all the versions had to be deleted iteratively and I had to recursively go through every prefix and try to like clean all of those versions up. And so it was like, it just took four days to do it. And I was like, oh, this is not fun. Meanwhile, like in Terraform Cloud, I could just click, you know, delete workspace and I don't have to worry about destruction and cleaning up anymore, so.
2: That sounds really awesome. I, I'm quite sure a lot of people are now wondering, right? So my state contains some sort of secrets, right? There, there's probably some tokens in there that I need to create the infrastructure or access to database, etc. How does Terraform Cloud handle those?
0: So Terraform Cloud in the state files themselves, nothing changes. They encrypt the state files. Um, while at rest. So for better or for worse, it's still pretty much the same thing as if you were encrypting your bucket at rest. Um, And so all of the state is encrypted at rest. Sensitive variables, however, on input, so if, for example, you need to insert a GCP service account private key, um, those sensitive variables are masked and write only. So you will not be able to access them in the UI or API. You can only write to them. And those are actually stored in Vault. So sensitive variables that are inputs and variables, then they're stored in Vault. But if they are tokens or, you know, keys, et cetera, same issue with what you would do in Terraform open source. Um, They would not be necessarily, unless you encrypt them, they would not necessarily be encrypted in your state file. But the state file that is stored is encrypted at rest for Terraform Cloud.
2: Nice. So we don't have to worry about those tokens, those variables, everything safely stored in Vault. Nice.
0: Yep, everything is stored in Vault. I think that it's uh it's pretty cool that we actually use our own tools <laughs> to store it. Uh, it's actually, uh, it provides some sense of security in some respect because, and security, I mean in the mental respect, but uh, it provides a sense of security to say like, hey, this, you know, if you want to know about the architecture of how these sensitive variables are stored, you go to the open source Vault's code and you can dig through it um, and learn about, how all of these are stored. And and we also, you know, maybe in the future it'll support rotation too, who knows. So Vault, Packer Vagrant, the releases, nothing nothing in general uh, announced at HashiConf EU, but there are definitely some pretty cool features that might be coming out later. And with Vault, there's always a good number of backends and plugins that are always under development. So we'll definitely be watching out there for Vault.
2: So, Rosemary, speaking of Vault, uh, you were just at OSCON giving a a Vault workshop. How was that?
0: Oh, that was a lot of fun. So we... We're doing a hands-on vault on Kubernetes specifically workshop, and there are a good number of people who ask us how you run Vault on Kubernetes. Uh, and the general stance has been it's not a good idea because of the multi-tenancy concerns. Um, and anytime you run Vault and multi-tenant environment, um, we're going to have some security concerns. But a lot of uh, a lot of the engineers who talk to us are like but look i want a way to orchestrate vault and i want a way to manage it and manage its life cycle a little bit easier and i'm very familiar with kubernetes so can you help so we ran this workshop to just demonstrate here is how you might use helm and kubernetes to deploy a high availability vault so one per zone or one uh one pod per environment or not environment, sorry, one pod per availability zone, one pod per host. And with this set of three, here's how you might retrieve secrets using some kind of sidecar, using uh, various dynamic secrets patterns. And so all of that is in that workshop. If you go to hashi.co slash oscon workshop, you'll see the repository there. Um, but it's got a bunch of Helm charts. It deploys Vault with a console backend. It's not purely cloud agnostic is done on GCP just for the convenience of the workshop. But the intent is that you can update the Helm charts as you see fit so that you can deploy it to any cloud that you desire. Nice. Yeah. And it's really fun. And I guess the question that we should probably answer is why did you bother using Helm? Why not use Terraform? Um, And the reality is that we wanted to show that there are native Kubernetes tools that you can take advantage of as well. Um, Yes, Terraform would make it easier to deploy Vault and Console and manage it on Kubernetes, it could. Um, But at the time for this workshop in particular, a lot of the uh, attendees are very familiar with Kubernetes. Um, They're very familiar with the Kubernetes ecosystem and the tooling. And it probably wouldn't have served us Uh, very well for the timing of the workshop to include Terraform because everybody would have to learn Terraform on top of Vault. So just keeping the focus on Vault, we just decided, you know what, we'll just use the Helm charts that we have for console and um, take a Helm chart for uh, Vault and just sort of build on top of that.
2: Makes sense. Well, you could always use the Helm provider for Terraform to configure the Helm charts of (laughs) Vault and do it that way, but that might be cheating.
0: I don't think that's cheating. I think it'd be really cool if we actually deployed the Vault Helm chart with the Terraform Helm provider, something to go back and refactor another time. Anyway, I know that we're concluding our podcast today and just to keep with tradition, let's get Nick back on here and he's going to ask us our silly question. Hey, Nick.
1: Now. Love it or hate it, most people hate it, airline food. So our non-traditional, our traditional, non-traditional, traditional, traditional, unconventional traditional question for HashiCast today is, if you were a meal on an airplane, what meal would you be and why? Over to you, Rosemary.
0: Oh, oh no. Uh, if I was to choose a meal on an airline, it definitely wouldn't be fish. I've never had any luck with fish. So I know that I wouldn't be, but I'd probably be some very generic chicken and pasta that you heat up, mostly because it's like a solid tried and true. You're not necessarily going to get sick from it. It's still pretty tasty. Yeah. Chicken and pasta.
1: Nice. And you, Eric, what, what about you? Which Airplane delicacy would you be?
2: i I don't know if there's such a thing at all in airline food. Like the thing I definitely wouldn't want to be is one of those soggy things they call pizza on the airlines. Those are the worst. um I, I'd have to go with one of those stews with mashed potatoes on the side. Those are pretty, pretty decent, so. <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah, a, a robust a robust stew always wins.
2: Yeah, a little carrot, a little green pea.
0: I want to know when you've had a pizza on a plane, because I've never had a pizza on a plane. That doesn't seem
2: promising.
1: <laughs> That's a, How do they deliver it? I mean, how do you get the moped? Like, what have they got, special mopeds to deliver the pizza? No wonder it's bad.
2: Well, I wouldn't call them pizzas. They're like this doughy little pillowy goop with uh, tomato sauce on top.
1: I'm going to give a tip to all of our listeners, and that is airplane food. What I recommend you do, and this this caveat kind of, um, if you have a peanut allergy, you're in trouble, but if you don't have a peanut allergy, for airplane food, what you need to do is buy the largest bag of peanut m ms that you can find in the airport. I recommend anything over about 400 grams, and that will see you over 11 hours, no problem at all. Peanut m ms greatest airplane food
2: ever. With your addiction to Tony Chuck Lonely, Nick, do they have M and M shaped goodies as well?
1: They don't, uh, unfortunately. But um, I mean, I'm I'm pretty unpartisan when it comes to to sugar. I I'll kind of I'm happy with it in in most forms. But um, yeah, M and M's are definitely my favorite.
0: I need to try M and M's on an airplane. I don't think I've actually had M and M's on an airplane. Anyway. On that note, we're going to conclude our HashiCast today. If you have any feedback, please let Eric or myself know. We're on Twitter and many other social media platforms.
2: And if you want us to host the next one instead of Nick and Mishra, we totally understand. Uh, please let us know.
0: Thanks for listening today. You have been listening to HashiCasts with Eric Feld and Rosemary Wong. Be sure to tune in next time.